Part 3, Chapter 4 of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook. Part 3, Chapter 4, Reaping the Fruit, Continued. 5. The new year, 1859, brought an event of great importance to the cause of army reform. In March, Lord Derby's stopgap government was defeated on Mr. Disraeli's reform bill, and after a general election, Lord Palmerston returned to power. Mr. Sidney Herbert, who for some years had been working at army reform as an outsider, now became Secretary for War. I must send you a line, he wrote to Miss Nightingale, June 13th, to tell you that I have undertaken the Ministry of War. I have undertaken it because, in certain branches of administration, I believe that I can be of use, but I do not disguise from myself the severity of the task nor the probability of my proving unequal to it. But I know that you will be pleased to hear of my being there. I will try to ride down to you tomorrow afternoon. God bless you. Mr. Herbert's task was not rendered less severe by the appointment of Mr. Gladstone as Chancellor of the Exchequer. They were close and affectionate friends, but public economy was with Mr. Gladstone the greater friend. Much of Mr. Herbert's strength was exhausted in disputes with the Chancellor of the Exchequer over the question of the national defenses. Mrs. Herbert sent to Miss Nightingale the current riddle. Why is Gladstone like a lobster? Because he is so good, but he disagrees with everybody. Mr. Herbert could by no means always count upon the Treasury for consent in all his schemes for improving the sanitary and moral condition of the army. Still, he was able, as Secretary of State, to accomplish a great deal, and will be convenient here, with some slight anticipation, in certain cases of chronological order, to summarize shortly the fruits of the long collaboration between Mr. Herbert and Miss Nightingale for the health of the British soldier. She herself wrote such a summary in 1861, in a paper to which reference has been made already. And I often use her own words. The Barracks and Hospitals Improvement Commission had already done a good deal when he came into office, and he continued the work. Buildings were ventilated and warmed, drainage was introduced or improved, the water supply was extended, the kitchens were remodeled, gas was introduced in place of the couple of dips, by the light of which it was impossible for the men to read or pursue any occupation except smoking. Structural improvements were made in many cases, and Mr. Herbert, so far as he could extract money from the Treasury, reconstructed buildings which had been condemned by his commission. This policy was abandoned for many years after his death, and later generations heard in consequence of sanitary scandals in barracks at Windsor and Dublin and elsewhere. The general report of the Barracks and Hospitals Commission, dated April 1861, was presented to Parliament in that year, and many of Miss Nightingale's friends on reading it referred to it as her book. They were not far wrong, for much of the report, and especially the long section dealing with the proper principles of hospital and barrack construction, was in large measure her work. Miss Nightingale, in order to ensure that such principles should be better understood and carried out in the future, induced Mr. Herbert to appoint a special barracks works committee, to report as to measures to simplify and improve the system under which all works and buildings, other than fortifications, are constructed, repaired, and maintained in order to give a more direct responsibility to the persons employed in those duties. 
Of this committee, Captain Galton was a member, and the draft report was submitted to Miss Nightingale for criticism and suggestion. There are many causes to which the improved health of the army in our own time may be attributed, but the chief of them has probably been the improvement of barrack accommodation, and for this the name of Florence Nightingale deserves to be held in grateful remembrance by the army and by the nation. As a supplement to the improvements in barrack kitchens, Mr. Herbert introduced a reform in a direction which Miss Nightingale had pressed upon Lord Panmure's attention. He established a school of practical cookery at Aldershot for the training of regimental and hospital cooks in the art of giving men a wholesome meal. Miss Nightingale had been painfully impressed in the Crimea by the importance of this reform. The second subcommission was charged with the duty of reorganizing the army medical statistics. This was one of the requirements of rational reform which had most forcibly struck Miss Nightingale in the East. The emphasis which she laid upon this side of her experience, the persistence with which she pressed the matter, the statistical skill with which she showed the way to a better system, are amongst the most valuable of her services to the cause of army reform. When the suggestions of the subcommission were carried out, the British army statistics became the best and most useful then obtainable in Europe. The third subcommission was to carry out another of Miss Nightingale's favorite ideas, the establishment of an army medical school. There were here the most wearisome delays and obstructions, and it was not until Mr. Herbert himself became Secretary of State that he was able to give effect to his subcommission's report. And even then, as soon as the minister's personal oversight was averted, the war office subs set to work to defeat their chief. Mr. Herbert had appointed the staff in 1859, but it was not till September 1860 that the first students arrived at Fort Pitt, Chatham. They promptly came to the conclusion that the school was a hoax. As well they might, for the school was without fittings or instruments of any kind. The explanation, which may be read elsewhere, is remarkable even in the annals of departmental muddles. There was apparently no method known to the red tape of the routine men whereby the school could be fitted, and it might have remained empty indefinitely, but that a trenchant letter from Miss Nightingale secured the personal intervention of the Secretary of State. There, at last, wrote Mr. Herbert to her, in forwarding the official order at the end of its long travels through departments and sub-departments. The Army Medical School was peculiarly Miss Nightingale's child, and she watched over its early stages with constant solicitude. Mr. Herbert had commissioned her, in consultation with Sir James Clark, to make the regulations. She had the nomination of the professors. For the chair of hygiene, she nominated Dr. E. A. Parks, whose acquaintance she had made during the Crimean War. It would be difficult to exaggerate the services which the stimulating teaching of this great sanitarian rendered to the cause of military hygiene. He had much correspondence with Miss Nightingale in connection with the syllabus of his first course of lectures. In every administrative difficulty, the professors went to her for help. The correspondence between her and Dr. Aitken is especially voluminous. She had made a successful fight against much opposition to have pathology included in the professoriate, and Dr. Aitken was ultimately appointed to the chair. He it was who set Miss Nightingale in motion about the fittings of the school. He often asked her to give us another push. Kind thanks, he wrote, March 1861, when a further hitch had arisen, for placing our train on the proper line. Her intervention at headquarters was necessary even to extract pay for the professors. I have just received an intimation from the war office, Dr. Aitken wrote to her August 7, 1860, 
that Sir John Kirkland has been authorized to issue my pay, so I presume the numerous officials concerned have been able to satisfy each other that I am in existence. The at once in this instance is equal to six days, an activity I am inclined to believe is due to your exertions on Sunday. Sunday was the day of the week on which, if on no other, she always saw Mr. Herbert. Dr. Aitken was sarcastic, and not without cause, about the circumlocution office, but it is possible that the fault was not always on only one side. Professors are said to be sometimes children in matters of business, and on one tale of woe addressed to Miss Nightingale, the docket, in Dr. Sutherland's handwriting, but doubtless at her dictation, is this. I hope the present difficulty has been got over, but it will be well to bear in mind that the school is so nearly connected with the administrative part of the war office that all your future proceedings, whether by minute or otherwise, should be concise and practical. The school survived the perils of its infancy and introduced a most beneficent reform by affording means of instruction in military hygiene and practice to candidates for the Army Medical Service. Formerly, as Miss Nightingale wrote, Young men were sent to attend sick and wounded soldiers who perhaps had never dressed a serious wound or never attended a bedside except in the midst of a crowd of students following in the wake of some eminent lecturer who certainly had never been instructed in the most ordinary sanitary knowledge, although one of their most important functions was hereafter to be the prevention of disease in climates and under circumstances where prevention is everything and medical treatment often little or nothing. Miss Nightingale's services as the true founder of the school were publicly acknowledged at the time. Dr. Longmore, the professor of military surgery, told the students that it was she whose opinion, derived from large experience and remarkable sagacity in observation, exerted an especial influence over originating and establishing this school. In the Army Medical School just instituted, wrote Sir James Clark, hygiene will form the most important branch of the young medical officer's instruction. For originating this school, we have to thank Miss Nightingale, who had her long and persevering efforts effected no other improvement in the army, would have conferred by this alone an inestimable boon upon the British soldier. The school was afterwards moved to Netley. It is now in London, is one of the medical schools in the university, and is placed in convenient proximity to a military hospital. The Tate Gallery on the embankment at Millbank stands between two buildings which are of peculiar interest to anyone concerned in the life and work of Florence Nightingale. To the east of the gallery is the Royal Alexandra Hospital, a general military hospital for the London district. It is built, of course, on the pavilion plan, and in every other respect conforms to Miss Nightingale's ideas of what a hospital should be, with many additions to its resources which the progress of science has suggested since her day. A complete apparatus for x-ray treatment, capable of being packed into five cases for service in the field, is likely to attract the special attention of a visitor. But in connection with Miss Nightingale, there was something else which struck me more. As I went through the surgical wards with the commandant, the smart orderlies, old style, now the trained men of the Army Medical Corps, stood at attention. The colonel entered into conversation with the sergeant of the ward, he was awaiting promotion until he had qualified in the hospital under the matron, sisters, and staff nurses. Promotion in the corps is now dependent on an examination plus a certificate from the nursing authorities. Into how great a thing has the introduction of female nursing for the army due to Miss Nightingale grown, 
and how ironical are some of the times revenges which the development has brought with it. Originally, the female nurses occupied the lowest place. Sometimes they were little more than superior domestics, often they were amateurs, and their position was always a little nondescript. Now they represent the most highly trained and professional element, and without a certificate from them no male hospital attendant can win full promotion. And there was another thing that struck me. After a tour of the surgical wards, I inquired about the medical wards, but time was pressing. And you would find little to see there, said the colonel, for the army is so healthy these days that there are few medical cases. On the west of the Tate Gallery stands another and larger pile of buildings. These are occupied by the Royal Army Medical College, through which every army medical officer has now to pass both a preliminary and a postgraduate course. Shortly before I visited the college, I had been reading the large mass of Miss Nightingale's papers, which contain her first suggestions for the foundation of the school, with her drafts for its rules and regulations, and which described the struggles and difficulties of its humble infancy. And then I was taken through the noble institution into which it has developed, equipped with large laboratories, which are, I believe, among the best in the country, with smaller laboratories for private research, with a department for those cultures which are said to have done so much to preserve the health of the army in India, with a spacious lecture theatre, a fine library, a large museum, and with handsome mess-rooms for the comfort and convenience of studious youth. The transition was like a transformation scene in a pantomime. The fairy godmother of the college would have rejoiced to see it. Only one thing seemed to me to be wanting— there are portraits or other memorials of many of the men whose acquaintance we have made in these pages. In the entrance lobby there is a bust of Dr. Thomas Alexander, whose appointment as Director General Miss Nightingale procured. In the smoking room there are portraits of the first professors whom she nominated. I noticed no memorial of the two founders to whom the original institution of the college was due, Sidney Herbert and Florence Nightingale. The last of the four subcommissions, the wiping subcommission, had very varied duties assigned to it, and there was no branch of the reform bill which encountered more stubborn opposition from the permanent officials. One of Mr. Herbert's many letters to Miss Nightingale on the subject speaks of the gross ignorance and darkness beyond all hope of the principal obstructive, who maintained that the idea of a sanitary official was all fudge. Some of the work of this subcommission need not be detailed here, it framed a new Army Medical Officer's Warrant, issued by General Peel in 1858, and reorganized the Army Medical Department, 1859. These were useful steps at the time, but there have been so many new warrants and so many War Office reorganizations since then that this part of the reforms of Mr. Herbert and Miss Nightingale belongs in any detail only to ancient history. The case is different with the general work of the Wiping Subcommission, here also there have been new developments, and some of the forms have been changed, but in substance these have all been built upon the foundations laid in the years 1859 to 1860. To Miss Nightingale primarily, and to her more than to any other individual, is due the recognition of a principle which may seem self-evident at the present time, but which was entirely novel in her day, the principle that the Army Medical Department should care for the soldier's health as well as for his sickness. The subcommission, or to go behind the form to the reality, Miss Nightingale and Mr. Herbert, drew up a code for introducing the sanitary element in the army, defining the positions of commanding and medical officers and their relative duties regarding the soldier's health, 
and constituting the regimental surgeon the sanitary adviser of his commanding officer. The same code contained regulations for organizing general hospitals and for improving the administration of regimental hospitals, both in peace and during war. Formerly, general hospitals in the field had to be improvised on no defined principles and on no defined personal responsibility. The wonder is not that they broke down, as they did in all our wars, but that they could be made to stand at all. In all our wars, again, the general hospitals had been signal failures, examples, as during the earlier months at Scutari, of how to kill, not to cure. The general hospital system, devised in the code, including its governor, principal medical officer, captain of orderlies, female nurses, and their superintendent, Mrs. Shaw Stewart, was realized in 1861 in the hospital at Woolwich. There were some other reforms introduced by Mr. Herbert as Secretary of State, which owed their origin to Miss Nightingale's experiences, observation, and suggestions. In January 1861, Mr. Herbert issued a new purveyor's warrant and regulations. Hitherto, the purveying department, like many others, had no well-defined position, duties, or responsibilities. It was efficient or inefficient almost by chance. Like other departments, it broke down when tried by war, and all its defects were visited on the sick and wounded men for whose special benefit it professed to exist. The new code defined with precision the duties of each class of purveying officers, together with their relation to the Army Medical Department. They provided all necessaries and comforts for men in hospital, both in the field and at home, on fixed scales, instead of requiring sick and wounded men, even in the field, to bring with them into hospital articles for their own use, which they had lost before reaching it. The reader will remember how largely purveying defects entered into Miss Nightingale's difficulties in the East, and a reference to her letters from Scutari will show that Mr. Herbert's code was based on the broad lines of her suggestions. As is hardly surprising, since she drafted the code in consultation with Sir John McDeal. Mr. Herbert also appointed a committee to reorganize the Army Hospital Corps, 1860. In former times, there were no proper attendants on the sick. For regimental hospitals, a steady man was appointed hospital sergeant, and two or three soldiers, fit for nothing else, were sent into the hospital to be under the orders of the medical officer, who, if he were fortunate enough to find one man fit to nurse a patient, was sure to lose him by his being recalled to duty Sometimes, indeed, men were nominated in rotation over the sick in hospital, as they would mount guard over a store. No special training was considered necessary. No one, except the medical officer, who was helpless, had the least idea that attendance on the sick is as much a special business as medical treatment. Unsuccessful attempts had been made to organize a corps of orderlies unconnected with regiments. The result was most unsatisfactory. Mr. Herbert's committee proposed to constitute a corps, the members of which, for regimental purposes, were to be carefully selected by the commanding and medical officers, specially trained for their duties, and then attached permanently to the regimental hospital. This reform, which owed much to Miss Nightingale's suggestions, was carried into effect shortly after Mr. Herbert's death. Mr. Herbert also took up those questions of the soldier's moral health, in which Miss Nightingale had been a pioneer. In 1861, he appointed a committee to consider how best to provide soldiers' day rooms and institutes in order to counteract the moral evils supposed to be inseparable from garrisons and camps. The committee, of which Miss Nightingale's friends, Colonel Lefroy, Captain Galton, and Dr. Sutherland were members, 
showed that the men's barracks can be made more of a home, can be better provided with libraries and reading rooms, that separate rooms can be attached to barracks where men can meet their comrades, sit with them, talk with them, have their newspaper and their coffee, if they want it, play innocent games and write letters, that every barrack, in short, may easily be provided with a kind of soldier's club to which the men can resort when off-duty, instead of to the everlasting barrack room or the demoralizing dram shop, and that in large camps or garrisons such as Aldershot and Portsmouth, the men may easily have a club of their own out of barracks. The committee also recommended increased means of occupation in the way of soldiers' workshops, outdoor games and amusements, and rational recreation by lectures and other means. The plan was tried with great success at Gibraltar, Chatham, and Montreal. Mr. Herbert's latest act was to direct an inquiry at Aldershot as to the best means of introducing the system there. Miss Nightingale, in thus summarizing the case, did not state what her correspondence shows to have been the fact, that she had been the prime mover in the appointment of the committee, that, as already related, she had worked hard to obtain a reading room, etc., at Aldershot, and that in the case of Gibraltar the equipment of the room owed much to the gifts from her own private purse, and to the contributions of personal friends, Mrs. Gaskell among them, whom she had interested in the scheme. Here, as in so many other directions, Miss Nightingale's work as a pioneer had been greatly developed, and no modern barrack is deemed complete without its regimental institute, with recreation room, reading room, coffee room, and lecture room, while means of outdoor recreation and shops for various trades are also provided. 6. In recounting Mr. Herbert's reforms, Miss Nightingale brought the results of them, after her usual manner, to the statistical test. She prefixed to her memoir some colored diagrams showing how Mr. Herbert found the army and how he left it. In the three years, 1859, 60, and 61, just one half of the Englishmen who entered the army died at home stations per annum as formerly died. The total mortality at home stations from all diseases had become less than was formerly the mortality from consumption and chest diseases alone. The results of comparisons of British armies in the field were equally striking. The China expedition put the reforms to the test. An expeditionary force was sent to the opposite side of the world into a hostile country notorious for its epidemic diseases. Every required arrangement for the preservation of health was made, with the result that the mortality of this force, including wounded, was little more than 3% per annum, while the constantly sick in hospitals were about the same as at home. During the first months of the Crimean War, the mortality was at the rate of 60%, and the constantly sick in the hospitals were sevenfold those in the war hospitals in China. The improvement in the health of the army has, in peace at any rate, been progressive, in 1857, the annual rate of mortality in the army at home was 17.5 per 1,000. Forty years later, it had fallen to 3.42. In 1911, it was 2.47. Besides all this, Mr. Herbert undertook, in 1859, the chairmanship of the Royal Commission on the Sanitary State of the Indian Army. Other work of his in connection with the army is well known, and some of it, such as his fortification scheme, did not endure, but these matters do not concern us here. His measures for the health and well-being of the soldiers were what Miss Nightingale was interested in, and this joint work of theirs has been of lasting benefit. After Sidney Herbert's death, there was an arrest in reform, but the main lines laid down by him have been followed to our own day. 
1896, a friend in the war office went through Miss Nightingale's memoir of Sidney Herbert for her and noted the present state of things in relation to it. The Army Sanitary Committee was still in existence. The School of Cookery at Aldershot was in the Queen's regulations. The general military hospitals were maintained. The Army Medical School had been moved to Netley. The Army Medical Statistics were still published annually. The position of Army Medical Officers had been further improved. There was a regular organized medical staff corps. The recommendations of the Barracks Works Committee of 1861 had been carried out, with the result that the engineer officers had more individual responsibility and were better acquainted than formerly with the details of healthy barrack and hospital construction. Soldiers' institutes had been put up on war office land at several stations. Recreation and reading rooms were to be found in most barracks, and no new barrack was erected without them. Such changes as have taken place since 1896 have been for the better, as I have indicated in preceding pages, for the better and more in line with Miss Nightingale's ideas. Her great work, Notes on the Army, contained as events were to prove not only the scheme of all Sidney Herbert's reforms, except those relating to defense, but the germ and often the details of further reforms within the same sphere, which have continued to our own day. During the years of her cooperation with Mr. Herbert, Miss Nightingale chafed at obstruction and delay, and after his death she cried out bitterly at the cessation of further progress. But in the end it was as her wise mentor, Sir John McNeil, wrote, March 26, 1859, It vexes me greatly to find that you are thwarted and annoyed by such things as you tell me of, but I am not in the least surprised. I did not expect you to accomplish so much in so short a time. Be assured that the progress from a worse to a better system is in almost every department of human affairs a progress slow and interrupted. Do not then be discouraged. If you have not done all that you desired, and who ever did, you have done more than anyone else ever did or could have done, and the good you have done will live after you, growing from generation to generation. I do not remember any instance in which new ideas have made more rapid progress. The bearing of the new ideas in relation to the army was pointed out in Miss Nightingale's summary of Mr. Herbert's services. He will be remembered chiefly, she wrote, as the first war minister who ever seriously set himself to the task of saving life, who ever took the trouble to master a difficult subject so wisely and so well as to be able to husband the resources of this country in which human life is more expensive than in any other, more expensive than anything else, and to preserve the efficiency of its defenders. In this work, during Mr. Herbert's term of office, as in the preceding years, Miss Nightingale was his constant assistant, and often the originator. They conferred personally or by letter almost every day. No move in the sphere of sanitary reform was made by the Minister for War until he had taken her opinion. Every draft was submitted to her criticism and suggestion. When Mr. Herbert took office, his wife wrote, June 16, 1859, to thank Miss Nightingale for her dear note of congratulations, adding, He entirely agrees with your suggestions of this morning, and I am copying your circular note for the four pundits. In the following month, July 26, he sends her the proposed sanitary regulations. I shall be very much obliged if you will go over the papers with Sutherland. Sydney is coming to see you today, August 13th, to talk about the regulations. Four days later, can Miss Nightingale give me the names of some governors for our new general hospitals? In later months, the scheme for the medical school and the new regulations for purveyors were discussed between them. 
On one occasion, a dispatch from Miss Nightingale, enclosed under cover to Mrs. Herbert, followed the minister to Windsor. I gave your letter to your sovereign. It's lucky the real one did not see your cover. The correspondence of 1860 is to like effect. Here is a dispute which is Hebrew to me. Would you look it over with Sutherland? I have written in our joint sense, and so forth. Miss Nightingale supplied, however, more than detail. For one thing, persistent stimulus. At the end, it was stimulus to a dying man. End of Part 3, Chapter 4, Reaping the Fruit.